Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Mean Line Media presents the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Kevin Waits, and I'd like to welcome you to a new episode of Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits, where we sit around the campfire and we just talk. We talk about race, we talk about age, we talk about culture, disability, gender, all of the things that make us different with hopes that we can somehow move forward together. Moving forward, uh, you know, it calls for us to build bridges of trust. And once we build those bridges, we can all walk across those bridges of trust together. Uh, I'm very excited uh, to have our guest on this evening. I'm going to start off just by telling you a little bit about him. Uh, he's a junior at Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He's a history major with minors in music, secondary education, and Asian studies. He plays the trumpet. Uh, he was elected DEI officer last year at his college. He's the senator for the student body, as well as the chairman of the committee on election. And I would take this opportunity to officially welcome John Patton to Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits. Welcome. Oh, it's good to be here. I appreciate you having me on, boss. Gosh, you were you were just looking at your buyer. You were so distinguished, you know what I'm saying, to be so young and be so heavily involved in, in leadership roles already. What do you what do you attribute that to? Um, I mainly like just my mom, she always like was like to me, she's like a leader, like being like a black lady, black woman, like a powerful black woman, and just her being able to be like take care of the control, like the situation. She uh, was the DEI uh, officer lead for Coke College. And then now she's a DEI officer with the Myrtle Beach Chamber. So just seeing her in those leadership positions is kind of like, oh man, I got to step up my game because if I don't, then uh, mom's going to be like, what you doing, son? Come on now. So I love it. I hear it. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I talked a little bit about you in your bio, but can you go a little bit deeper and telling the listening audience basically what what make John's tick? Um, you know, talk, tell us about the things that I don't have in your bio, more personal and uh, a closer look at you. Um, so I um, was born uh, to my mom, uh, Danette, and my dad, Alex. Uh, my mom is a black lady from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and my dad is uh, Caucasian from uh, like medieval, uh, medieval, medieval Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's, a, it's a small rural area, but right. so it's like rural white Caucasian dad and uh, like basically grew up in the hood mom. And then, gotcha. you know, she went to college. Dad didn't. Dad was in the military and I was born in uh, Riverside, California. And I kind of grew up, you know, in a decent like Riverside, but I only stayed there for a few years and it was a decent time. And then we moved to uh, North Carolina, Charlotte, lived there for a, year, a couple of years and then moved to Augusta, lived there for a few years. And then my mom went to pursue her doctorate at a SIU, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. And then I spent like half middle school and all high school in Carbondale and then got accepted 
and went to still going to college at a co-college in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, went there in the middle of COVID, so it was kind of hard to actually start getting involved in stuff. But one of the first things I did was make sure I was like at least part of the band sessions. They were on Zoom at the time. Uh, I played trumpet since third grade. Um, I actually, my great grandfather, who also was named John, he played the trumpet. So I have four generations of marching band in my family. So if I didn't do an instrument, then I don't know. And I was like, I, was like, I can't. Mom played the flute. Uh, grandma did color guard. So, you know, it's like I, I kind of had to go into the fold somehow. And I love um, like marching band in high school. And then I always like got inspiration watching the Ohio State doing their marching band stuff. And then I did like to watch uh, HBCU marching bands because their sound is just so beautiful. And it's like that was kind of a small dream that I had like growing up was like, oh, it'll be really cool to do like HBCU marching band because they're like all elite. They're all really good. So like props to them for doing that. And uh, so Coke College being a small liberal arts school doesn't really have much of a music program. But at first I thought we there, it's been kind of a interesting to go into this like smaller school. And then your band is like a hundred plus also including uh, folks from the community and alumni. So you get to interact with them and do things like, you know, like some, some events you get to like during Christmas, we like make cookies together and stuff like that. And then, but it's still like professional. So we're still playing for an audience and doing these things. And then some of our shows, like we have to sell tickets to. So it's, I never really had that experience of like, okay, people are paying somewhat, like not that much, like five bucks to come see me play or come see the band play. But then it's like, you're part of that. So it's a very interesting, like, I'm, it's like playing for money, but I'm not really, so this, but it's just like, that's an aspect that never was like, that's part of it for like, never happened before in high school. Cause you don't pay to go to a band concert, but like to a college concert, you know, got to generate some funds for the college. But then it's like, oh, well, I just like playing the trumpet. It's pretty good. And Jazz band's fun too. I've been doing jazz band for a while. I love jazz music. Got to go to New Orleans um, for the first time last summer, and the jazz there scene was amazing. So through music, I would like through band and music and my band director there, uh, I was able to do that. So that's I like really that's my love for music. But as I as said before in the bio, I have a music minor. I have a music minor. So. My major major is um, history, and I love history. History, I've been loving history for like probably since the same time I had to have a trumpeter before. Um, as a kid, I wouldn't watch cart. I would like cartoons, you know. I have a kid that I like cartoons or something like that, and playing games. But what I liked was um, history documentaries. I watched the History Channel in the morning. And it was like, you don't really see kids watching the History Channel. And I was like, I like what's going on here. I like this stuff. I like these stories because I like stories of actual, like, being, like, people who've lived and experienced stuff. Because I like the quote, like, uh, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. So mm -hmm. it's like, if you don't look at those past stories and, like, that's not told, then some stuff that's been, like, going on in the world now, if you, that, 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 that happened back, like, 150, 50, 100 years ago. And it's, like, reoccurring. And it's just, like, come on, if you don't teach it and like learn about it, it's they, they, then the mistakes of like our past generations could happen again. So that's like what really involves me in history. And I love history a lot. Um, that's why education going to be a history teacher. Um, that's another driving thing is just teaching the kids, you know, like the stories of like 
their ancestors, my ancestors, and making sure the stories are told, you know, with respect. And also, like, they're not inclusive, like, in being inclusive, so being able to tell the stories from multiple people and not just, like, one just bland story of, like – you know, like America, like it's just like one story like this and this, this happened. But then like, let's break down into it. Let's go into it. Talk about like, like race, talk about gender, talk about um, like, where, where are you from? Like, I mean, people say America is a melting pot, but it's really a salad bowl. You think about it. So it's just very interesting how like all that really learning and like being able to spread that and teach that is like really what drives me. And then that little Asian studies minor, it was just, I have the classes. So I picked it up as like a little bonus. So that was kind of fun that that I was able to do that via my history major Mm -hmm. and my gen eds. I was able to add Asian studies to that. So that's a lot of drivers there, but I'm just a whole mixed bag of, you know, tricks, I guess. That's what I'll say. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And I thank you for uh, helping us get to know you a little bit better. But I do have to ask you to tell me about that salad bowl you were just talking about. You mentioned that so many people, um, you know, call America a melting pot. But you said, hey, it's just one big salad bowl. Tell me about the salad bowl. So this happened in my uh, U.S. history class from 1865 to modern day. Um, This is taught by my main history advisor, uh, Professor uh, Derek Buckaloo, he's a really good guy. I like him a lot. He uh, went to Stanford for his um, undergrad, so he went to there. And he saw. I, I think he's pretty, pretty, pretty smart dude. And he just goes one day because he. We talk about where the melting pot idea came from, and he's like, "Well, I don't think America is a melting pot. I think it's more of a salad bowl." And I was like, "Okay, why do you think that?" He said, "Well, you the melting pot." It's like soup or like chowder or something like that or like a a broth and all those things get mixed together. I'm like, yes, America, you have a lot of mixing together, but in a salad bowl, you have all the unique little things because every like little lettuce is slightly different and you have like tomatoes or something in there or you have croutons, you have onions and they're all a little different, but they all like they're all different, but they all work together to make like a good salad. But like same with the melting pot, it's still going to be good, but then you kind of lose the distinctiveness of every little thing inside of it, all the ingredients. But then in a salad bowl, you have all your different different ingredients and then your own little differences in the ingredients. And that's what makes it like a whole good salad. That's awesome. And and I wanted you to explain that uh, for myself, along with the listeners, because I've heard that one time before and I didn't know what your perspective on it, what your take was on it, and if it would be explained the same way. I got a good friend named Charlene Costanza uh, and she's an award winning author. And, and, and she sat right here months ago on the same podcast and she said the same thing, you know, and I was mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? And she talked about how real similar just the way you explained it. She talked about how in a melting pot, you have all of these ingredients that you throw in there and you melt them down. And so what you're really doing is, is you're, is you're changing, you know what I'm saying? The, the uniqueness, like you talked about. Uh, and she said, in the salad, you got everything and it, and it keeps, you know what I'm saying? The uniqueness about it, the bacon bits, the salad or whatever. So I was intrigued uh, when you said that, uh, just to see and learn your perspective on it. So why do you think, you said yourself that it wasn't that common. Most other kids are watching Tom and Jerry, you know what I'm saying? SpongeBob. I went back too far. Tom and Jerry is too far back for you. Most kids are watching SpongeBob and different things. You're watching the History Channel. Why do you think history 
right now is so important to young people? Well, I think literally in our generation, because uh, I mean, we say literally a lot. That's the first thing. Uh, so Gen Z generation, I think we've lived through so much. If you think about it in the past 20, 25 years, it's like we were born either right before, during, like around the same time, right after September 11th. Some like I, I was born afterwards, so I couldn't be like I was because people like I've had people come up to me and be like, "Where were you? Where were you that day?" And I'm like, "Well, I was kind of like in a dark place. I didn't know what was going on, and you know, and then I was at my mom's house. But if you think about it, I ain't gonna go in detail, but you know, it's a joke. And mm-hmm. and people like people ask me that, and I'm like, oh, you know, but I, I think about it because it's like that really shaped like modern like modern history, like. Like you can go to airport beforehand because I don't know what it's like going through the airport without going through TSA and all these checkpoints. But people who before me were like, no, just going straight through straight to your airplane. It don't have to go through really like a baggage check that much or like TSA and your screenings and everything like that. So that's where I'm like really important. And then like in the past couple of years, like my graduation got stolen basically from me for COVID. Like COVID, the whole like issue with COVID was – yeah, social distancing. And I'm like, yeah, I was like, that was cool with social distancing because I didn't want to get sick. I've trust me, I had COVID once, not a fun time. And, but just the, how much it like took away from what, like our graduations, like that's the one thing you like, you have your high school graduation, you only get that really once. And just to have, not have that experience, it's kind of, it's just really like heartbreaking. And like sometimes I think about something like, dang, I really wish I had that. But I mean, you just got to learn from that and basically, you know, health practices all over the world and think about that. Like what happened? How, how did people handle it? And you could be like, you could see, and also like the nurses um, and then politicians, different different perspectives on this. People who lost loved ones, people who are still having like after effects. Like I know a guy who had it same time I had it and he still doesn't have his taste or smell fully back. And that was two and a half years ago. So to me, it's really about the whole like idea issue of just knowing what's going on now in current events has this happened before in history how do people in the past dealt with it and how can like we learn in the future of like dealing with the current situations so like if another outbreak happens you need to like because you need to basically get that stuff taken care of September 11th, um, basically just better, you know, checks and stuff via TSA and stuff like that. And then, you know, pursuing these like terrorist threats. Um, think about like uh, George Floyd and then like police brutality, Trayvon Martin, et cetera, all, all these like little African-American uh, guys getting killed by the police. It's just like, how do people react to that? How do people handle that? And how, like, when the future, how can you work to manage that? Because, you know, some, like, these kids, you know, because it'd be like, I didn't grow up with Rodney King. There's kids who grew up with Rodney King, but Rodney King wasn't from, like, but he wasn't, like, I was like, oh, that wasn't, like, I didn't really know about the Rodney King stuff until learning about it in a history book. And they barely talked about it in the history book. So it's also making sure the stories are told because some people I know who were alive, like during the time of school were like, oh, I just heard it's all on the news one day or I didn't, oh, who was Rodney King? I forgot who he was. And I'm like, well, it kind of caused a lot of like, it caused like like, people, LA riots and stuff like that. And it caused a lot of like discussion to start being caught up and brought up and stuff like that. And to me, it's just really interesting because you have like uh, Emmett Till previously and then like to like today, like uh, Arbery, like that case, it's just like, things it's like oh history is repeating itself um and these things are going on if you don't talk about it and this is not actually addressed issues and people aren't like the justices and served people aren't punished for their actions then this stuff's going to keep going on and it's all and history is like the main thing you should look at to figure out who did what like why it happened where does this come from and 
how what can we do in the future to make sure that this thing can be solved either in a quicker way, this thing doesn't happen in the future, or this thing takes another direction or turn. So you think it's extremely important for young people to not just, yeah, it's great to keep up with current events, but we need to pay attention to the history is what I'm hearing you say. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me this, John, um, when you look back at your education before college, was there anything that you learned in college that surprised you or caught you off guard as it relates to history that you wouldn't taught, you know, in, in, in school prior to college? Well, I took, but history in high school was interesting because I had the same, I had a, so I took world history my sophomore year of high, of high school, and then I took U.S., and they were both AP classes. So they were like honors classes, you know, the AP advanced placement system. So that was an interesting like thing to be like in a higher class level and then being one of only two or three African-American kids in there. Now in college, it was different because it's like, these are just, you know, not advanced or honorary classes. These are just basic classes, gen eds possibly. But then you have like things like seminar and stuff that I was in last semester that are like, you need to get this. And these are for all history majors. And then in college, it goes a little more in depth because in high school, you just got to get through all US history or all world history within a matter of like four, so four months semesters. So eight months, I would say roughly seven, eight months you have to go through everything and take a test at the end of it. And that's what really decides if you know history or not. So to me, it's the, in the discussion, we didn't really have discussion. It's a teacher in the front of the class talking and stuff like that. In college, it's more discussion. Like you're more open, more to be able to talk and bring you in for stuff like that. To me, that's what really is important. Is like all in like all like all being able to say what you so you know what's going on in the classroom or you know what's being taught. Because in high school, it's just you take a test and you show what you what you're like a like a SAT, ACT, or the AP test. You're basically just here's what I learned. And here, I'm just writing it all out for you. I'm not saying anything. In my U.S. history class, though, however, that there was, um, we had to present the PowerPoint. So we actually had to teach and we had to do it twice. So I, I, I put a lot and I respect a lot on my U.S. history teacher. Uh, it was Michael Butler. And even though he was a big Michigan fan, but he, he was, he was a really, you know, really good dude and really, um, was very passionate about history and the way he taught and the way he brought us into it, make sure that we actually reiterated what we were like seeing and reading in the books and hearing in class, like meant a lot. And, but now it feels like it's almost required now because in college to be able to like answer a question every so often, and then also present at least two or three times a semester instead of twice a year. So what, what I'm hearing you say, John, is that in high school, in some cases, it seems like it's really just, hey, it's this rush, it's this race. Let's get this information, memorize it, right? And and as you advance, it becomes more uh, critical thinking, you know what I'm saying? Getting the information, analyzing, figuring out what happened from your perspective and being able to articulate it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It was really just, do you, here's what you hear in class reciprocate and write it on the test coming on later. Uh, it's not, you don't really have much like students say, unless it's like a project or you get up in front of the class and have to say what you have to say. But now it's a lot more of, you got to be able to like read it and talk about it and take a quiz, like a book quiz. Uh, you got to present like a 10 minute speech about what's going on. Here's a paper 
don't add your own thoughts, but analyze, critically analyze this and don't summarize. So a lot more in-depth into like the actual like critical thinking, as you said. So yeah, it's a lot more critical thinking, a lot more analyzing and a lot more discussion based rather than just sit here, listen, repeat. Growing up in your parents uh, being interracial, can you talk about any challenges that you personally felt uh, because of that? Um, so like growing up interracial in, I would say the 2000, 2010s, when the real challenge, when I first got, like, I think it was the first time I really was had a really challenge being an interracial kid was in middle school, seventh grade. I just moved from Augusta to Carbondale and it was like the first week of school and I wanted to go hang out with like whoever and like hang out with everyone because I'm just a very like I like a whole bunch of people and I like introducing myself. I'm just very like, you know, I'm a I'm a cool guy. I try to, you know, shake hands to everybody, treat everyone, you know, equals. And I went to the white kids and they were like they didn't say it directly, but they were like, Oh, who's this kid? Who's this new kid? Why is he coming over to talk with us? And they were like, Oh, you're not really like you're not smart enough to sit because they're all in these like higher classes, like honors advanced classes. And I wasn't in them yet because I just transferred, so I didn't test in or anything. So I was sitting there like, okay, uh, okay, never mind. And then I went, okay, let me go talk to the black kids. And the black kids were like, what are you doing over here? What are you talking about? We know whose family are you with? What side of town do you live on? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I mean, I just got here. And he said, oh, you knew, huh? Yeah, you knew. You know, you, you know, you don't know what it's like over here. You know what's going on. And I'm like, well. Cause I lived in a nicer, I lived in a nicer suburb in Carbondale. I didn't live like in the ghetto as they call it. Cause there was like two of them that I remember. And it was like, you either live on the east side or west side of town, east side, which was the school was on both the middle school and the high school. Uh, you live on the east side is where like a lot of like the African-American kids lived and they, it was more like the hood or the ghetto. It's basically, I don't want to call it that, but then like, that's why I know they referred to it as, and it's just like, okay. The west side of town was kind of like the suburbs, and that's how it was. That's it was like kind of like between like middle class, mostly middle class suburbs. Then the north side of town was where like Latinos lived. That's where Latino, like all the Latino people lived. But then like north north side of town, on the um like way up there, it was um like the rednecks. So like you could go hang with them. South side of town. Uh, first was the college. So it was all college and grownups and everyone like, like for my grownups to the college kids, then further South was like, they would say like, kind of like hippies is what they called them. So it was like Macanda area. That's what the, like the town was called, but it was part of like the whole Carbondale district. So it's like, you had this real town of like weird group of like different people, all from different areas, all in this town, going to this school. And I couldn't fit in with these white kids in these smarter classes. And I couldn't get in the fit in with the black kids because I didn't know what the situation was like because I lived on the other side of town from them. And I was just like, well, if I can't be with the smart kids and I can't be with like these kids who have like family members who are gangbangers because it's and they lived in like the impoverished side of town, then how am I going to fit in? And so I went with these kind of like nerd kind of misfit band kids because band kids are their own sect of like people, I swear. And I kind of just started hanging with them, and then I there was uh, I had Rodney. He was African American, lived on the east side of town. Then I had um, John Cleese. He lived on the west side of like northwest side. So it was kind of between like the end of the suburbs and starting to get into like kind of like the Latino area. And then I had John Bigler, 
who was another friend of mine, he lived out, he's a white dude. He lived out way outside in the east side, kind of like in the country, but he wasn't like a real country dude. And I found like a, like just friends and all of them. And so it's like I had another mixed friend, a white friend and a black friend. So it's just like I kind of had like friends via like one that's like me mixed, one on kind of my white side and one on my black side. It was kind of like how I just had a one for each, as I would say, that fit each category. So that's really kind of how I cope with it is just being like having a mixed bag of friends and who are like have the same values like me and then not really kind of like fretting over like the fact that it was like, I'm not in this group with the black kids and I'm not in this group with the white kids are where I want to be, which is like the people who like like music and, you know, are just trying to have fun, like the game every once in a while, might nerd out every once in a while and just, you know, have a good time and not really care about the world or what the world kind of issues are. So that's just been me the really through middle school and then most of high school. High school got better once I got to know people, but middle school, that's how I got through. A few minutes ago, you said my black side and my white side, right? And so my question is, is having interracial parents, how do you prefer to be identified as it relates to your race or ethnicity? Um, so I either prefer to be like just as biracial or interracial. And then when I have to, because it's in there, because I fill out some forms when I do online forms or like any like just basic forms, I have to mm-hmm. circle white. I circle white and African-American because I don't want to be like listed as other because it's, right. I guess I have a sense of belonging to a group mm-hmm. and I, but I do prefer like interracial, but African-American kind of more identified because mm-hmm. I was raised I, – I, like my mom, I feel like I was raised by my mom and I'm kind of following my mom's path. Right. So that's why I really more identify with the black side of my family. But I do, I do love the white side of my family. Don't get me wrong. It's just the – like the issues, like how am I viewed like when a police officer pulls me over? Because I can't pass. I can't pass like the paper, like the paper bag test. I can't pass off as white. So if I, cause like I, cause I'm like, I'm half white. I could be like, oh yeah, I'm white. But then like, yeah, my skin, t- my skin tone and my color says otherwise. But then I say, oh, I'm black and like no, nothing else attached to it. Then basically I'll have someone basically say, you're just a light skin. Don't worry about it. So it's still black, but it's just a lighter, like this is just a light skin as they say. So yeah. I feel more, I can detach myself to the African-American group identity rather than trying to be like pass off or try to be a white person. Do you think sometimes, like you talked about filling out forms in you, yourself, you 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 check white and African-American. Do you think sometimes in filling out those forms, it, it kind of discourages people and makes them, at least on paper, pick a side? Um, yeah, because, I mean, if you're in an application and you're trying to do, um, like, do, I guess an application interview for like a, a job and you know that in America and like American society, if you fill out African-American, there already could be so many assumptions made about you. But and then like in case in most case scenarios, if you fill out like white, then there's like already not going to be any more scenarios about you. Like the thing is with my name, John, my mom wanted me to have that name. Another reason why she wanted me to have that name is because people wouldn't assume when I like start doing applications for things that I was already like African-American and have African-American background. Because mm. if you have people who have like Zaquan or Trayvon or like Jaquise or something like that, like say like just random st- like stereotypical African-American names, then they're already going to see that and instantly assume that you're African-American. And then it's like that could already lead to like if there's some person who 
has starting to already have some racial biases, they're not going to give you that chance to come in for an interview. So sometimes also like but filling out the like the, the white little box is like, okay, I'm, I am part white, so it's that. But it's also like they'll see that I'm part white and maybe they might not discriminate instantly against me. Because it's like I admit that. It was like because I have a white dad and a white background, it's like and lighter skin tone, I admit there's colorism. There's colorism in America. It's just like, oh, a lighter skin tone preferred to a darker skin tone. I mean, you look at like the baby test and you look like the baby doll test. I don't know if you heard about that when you like have like children pick a doll, which they see is ugly and which one they see is pretty and which mm-hmm. one would you like, which one do you not like, which one do you like? It's just like that lighter skin tone falls in the middle there. So it's like, you're not really ugly, but you're not really pretty. And then it's like, you know, finding that little like area. So it's also like, and it was done twice. It was done like back in like the fifties. I don't remember the name of the couple who did it, but it was done back then. And then it, again, it was done like in like the 2010s. I remember seeing it on the news and it was like the same, like it was better, but it was still like the same results. Yeah. But it was like, okay for older kids, but some of the young, like actually no, it was worse for like the older kids, but then the younger kids, it was a little bit better and they just kind of saw everyone as equal. But then the older kids were still kind of like mm, picking and choosing. Mm. So it's still like a very big issue for like me too. Cause sometimes I hate, like sometimes I'm like, oh man, cause it's like, I feel like I'm being disrespectful to my black side and I just put white and don't say anything else which i don't yeah. really do not not anymore i feel like I've, i definitely did it at least once or twice in middle school or high school i'll tell you the funny story though with that because in middle in high school when i first applied for the job i definitely wrote white on my application because my first time applying and then when i went in uh <laughs> all the managers that it was a taco bell were black so it was it's up for one and the, so it was really really funny because they were like hold up now you ain't white and it was like that's the whole conversation there of like mm-hmm. just like change that real quick for you so it was it was interesting and now i just put both so i yeah. think it puts respect on both sides and it's true to who i am as a person and i'm not trying to be something that i'm not so that's how it is john what social issues are most important to you and why um today um just for social issues um accessibility uh for you know just for folks i mean i have adhd um there's people out there like autism asperger's other like basically physical disabilities depression anxiety those are all really important today um at our school uh we are trying to work they're trying to work out best for doing uh accessibility plan there's an accessibility plan for the future five ten year plan to like make sure like there's elevators try to be elevators in each building the road like when you go into a sidewalk there's a ramp so you can actually get up and down from the sidewalk so they're trying their best i mean it's still like a process and a progress to like to get there and it took a lot of like a lot of like pushing and shoving with the like the higher ups and the administration to actually start getting those implemented so to me accessibility is a big thing um and then accountability for those for actually doing that accountability towards i like the school recently they went on and said that, yes, we're on Native American land, and it belonged to the Meskwaki tribe. And the new group, it was KSIA. It was like basically co-op students for like Indigenous Association. That's what it stands for. So they're like basically an association for like Indigenous students who were Indigenous, like there are Indigenous students in it, and advocates and friends and allies of Indigenous students. And they brought in the Meskwaki tribe to like perform and show off their culture. So I'm like, there's like you wouldn't see, you wouldn't really see this in like a small liberal arts school i mean yes it's good but you wouldn't really see this like 50 years ago because i mean you had stuff like john wayne and then like every single film and every single movie it's just like the native american is the bad guy absolutely 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so accountability is key and mm-hmm. in today's world. And then also just other things like just basic race, race, social issues. It's still a problem. We've had um, problems with our school happened to me. We were over planting trees and a guy who was there planting trees with the tree planting company looked over at a group of like me and a couple other black athletes were coming over. And he said, Oh, look, the N words are here. And the school didn't really pursue it and didn't really say anything because he wasn't part of the school. So just taking accountability back to that again, for Mm -hmm. like racism that happens on camp, like on and off campus or involving campus, like co-students, co-staff, co-faculty is pretty key. So race, just basic DEI issues is like really Mm -hmm. important. We had the issue of the bathrooms, uh, just being accessible bathrooms to everyone. Anyone can use the bathroom they want in like a, like a school space, right. uh, people, there was a group, so our co-alliance, which is like the LGBTQ plus organization on campus, put up some flyers about like, this is an all inclusive bathroom. Like if someone else is using the bathroom that doesn't look like you doesn't fit, doesn't seem like they have the same parts as you, then just don't say anything. Uh, don't worry. If you don't want to use the bathroom, just get out and use another bathroom. Like they have every right to be there. So do you. And they were torn down and marked on and scribbled on all these signs were. And then the school the uh, came out and was like, well, we didn't approve of the signs. So we can't really do anything to punish these people. Mm. So because we would have took them down anyway. And the way that we email was worded, every everyone went like it was really bad. Everyone was really upset and came on to the DEI office and the administration to do something about it. And then eventually the posters got approved and they were put up on the bathrooms. That's a, So it's like still active issues of stuff going on on campus, off campus that it like affects really us as students and us as mm-hmm. like Gen Z going up into going into the real world soon in like the next two, three years. And it's so it's like literally on a small, like little scale. Right. And it has it's the big picture. Yes. Another story. We had a board member, African American board member, who was just slandered on by fellow board members and basically called a bold faced liar. And he resigned because it was it was just he it was like way too much for him and he should never have been like, you know, addressed that way. Mm. And they wouldn't say, oh, it's not racism, you know, it's just, you know, between two people. And I'm like, well, look at the connotations, look at the implications of that. And we had a protest, like we had a whole bunch of us out there marching around and it made, it made national news sites. So it's, it's a local like school issue, but Mm -hmm. people are seeing it and it's being heard about. So like there's people there who want to see change and will do do protests and do other things necessary to see change happen. And it's a process, and I'm I, I'm glad I'm friends with a lot of these people who want to see change happen on this campus. So that's awesome. It's a great experience, but yeah. it's also like the issues there. It's still like kind of like you're tired because it's like you're tired of being tired and yeah. dealing with all these issues and stuff. But you just got to keep I, I got to keep hanging in there and keep fighting. You got to keep fighting. You got to keep hanging in there. You know, uh, I'll share this with you uh, because you said how sometimes you just get tired. Um, uh, I had an opportunity to. Uh, talked to a group during a MLK uh, conversation recently. And, you know, I drew the comparison between MLK's life and a relay race, you know, and I said, look, he knew that he wasn't going to be able to finish the race. You know what I'm saying? But, but he took the baton and he ran with it as hard as he could during his lifetime. 
And at some point he had to pass it on to somebody else. You know what I'm saying? And he passed that baton on to us. And so, you know, we may not see the change we really want to see before it's all said and done during our leg of the race. But, you know, just like him, we have an obligation to, to run our leg of the race as best we can. So I, I do know that sometimes you get tired and frustrated and you feel like you hit a wall, but we still got to find ways to, to keep on working. Because in my opinion, DEI really is, it's not a sprint. It's not a marathon. It is, it's a journey of continuous improvement. It's, it's, it's just continuous. It'll never end from my perspective. So let me ask you, John, um, have you ever had a life-changing conversation with anyone about race, culture, or just generally being different? Kind of when everything was going down with Trayvon Martin and a lot of like what happened in like near St. Louis, um, it was as a you know young kind of middle school earlier African American kid. Um, seeing that or people your age, like the one kid in Cleveland who got he had a BB gun, he got he got killed. Um, just seeing those was like that could have been me or that could be me cuz I still perceived as African American. My <laughs> my mom basically sat me down and said there are people in the world who will not like you because of the color of your skin and you just got to be prepared to uh deal with them in different ways. Sometimes you can be upset and angry, but sometimes you got to be calm and collected and so you don't get killed or something like that. Like we had a a moment when we went out to go watch star, we were going to watch the stars Mm -hmm. and it was in Carbondale and my, we were there watching the stars and we sat there for a little bit and me and my mom were outside. My dad was still in the car. Uh, And then this state trooper pulled up and he had his, uh, he had his gun out and his hand on the flashlight asking us like at gunpoint, like, what are we doing here? What are you doing here? And then uh, me and my mom were like trying not to like furry and scream. And we're kind of saying, we're putting our hands up from, like, Hey, Hey, right. we're just trying to watch the stars. But my dad comes out and says everything, you know, so everything all right here, officer. And he, and he puts his gun away instantly. And my dad walks out and he's a white dude. Mm. And so I'm like, why are you going to have your gun out and thinking we're like, you know, out here trying to do something illegal. And we're not really like we, I guess, according to him, we were trespassing on gov- like the state property because it was nighttime. And I was like, well, there was no signs and no times posted of when this place is closed. And we were only going to be here for a little bit and just go along or the rest of our night. And then we were like, my night was ruined after that because I was literally like at gunpoint with the police officer. And I'm glad I have my hands up. I mean, I was pulled over back in November. And I was scared. I was shaken, but I was staying calm and collected, gave them all my information and everything was fine. But they had like two cop cars pull me over. There was like four police officers there. I'm like, we don't need that many cops to pull me over. All right. I'm just there just trying to do it, just driving back to school. And then they told me that, you know, just some just registration issues and just get those fixed. And I was like, okay, cool. But I'm like, I don't know if they need four police officers to tell me I need to get my registration fixed. Cause I mean, I mean, it could have been like, you know, Oh, you don't, your cars, your cars have like a registration is expiring or expired is like, is this car yours? Are you sure it's yours? Cause it's a registration issue. But it was kind of like, just to me, it was kind of silly that they needed four officers to do that. It's just like just those experiences that like seeing it on TV and hearing about these bad things. And then, Having at least a um, somewhat could have like, could have gone bad right. and didn't or like didn't go bad at all and it was just routine and just normal. But then you notice some things. It's like those experiences. It's like 
I I can go. I've had I've met nice police officers. I mm-hmm. met like police officers. Like what I say, it means the world to me is police officers who look like me. Seeing an African American police officer makes me feel really safe. Right. Because I'm like he's there to protect and serve, and he looks like me, and I don't feel like that he would he would like harm me in any way. But then when right. I see a, a white police officer, then I'm kind of like constantly trying to watch my back to make sure that I'm like keeping my face looking towards him all time to see what he's doing. Because seeing like. Just all like all the um, police killing African American men and right. women. It's like this could happen to me anytime, anywhere, almost. And I, I hate that feeling of just like mm-hmm. I don't feel safe by people who are supposed to protect and serve me. Right. You know, serve the community. Awesome point, John. Awesome point. Um, being a history major, uh, if you could use a time machine, this is your curveball. I got a curve. I, I throw everybody a curveball that comes on. This is yours. So I hope you're ready for it. Being a history major, if you could use a time machine, go back and change one thing in history that would cause a positive outcome today, what would it be? <laughs> um, mm, I don't. Oh, yeah, because I remember I was, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about this. Um, the most recent thing I would do, at least change, is right now would be just going back to 2020 and if preventing like COVID from ever happening, mm. so I can actually get a graduation. And have like a normal start to my college career. That would be like one thing. If I keep going back, um, maybe making sure Donald Trump wasn't president. But that's 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 going into politics a little too much. And then 2000, maybe going to Florida and checking those ballot boxes to see what happened with George Bush and uh, Al Gore in that election. That was mm-hmm. that's that we we talk about that still today. But a couple other things is John Brown going back all the way to like 18 the Harper's Ferry. Okay. Keeping him fighting and keep making sure he didn't die because, I mean, he was a martyr, so it caused a lot of things. But I feel like if he would have been kept fighting or something stayed in that, then I feel like it still would have been a positive change of like fighting slavery. Uh, Abraham Lincoln assassination, that's another one I think I could have done a positive because I think – because Andrew Johnson becomes president after Abraham Lincoln. And Andrew Johnson was uh, Kentucky or Tennessee. I don't remember the state, but he's from Kentucky or Tennessee, which was like still a southern state. So Lincoln didn't want as – with Reconstruction, Lincoln wasn't as radical as some of the Republicans at the time were. Like they had to have, like for some of the time, you had to have fifty percent of your state Congress has to ratify the Thirteenth Amendment in order for you to get back in the United States, like the United States the Union. Lincoln was more lower than that, and he was around ten to twenty percent. And then Johnson comes along, he's like about five to ten percent is pretty good. And like so, you only have five percent, five to ten percent of your Congress has to ratify that slavery is illegal. So you can have 95 other percent of your people saying that, oh, well, that's fine. Slavery doesn't have to be, you know, and it's the few people doing that and you get to come back in the union. Like that to me, I'm like, no, like you, it's, you should get to have, you got to have more people on board with this in these positions of power to make sure that slavery stays legal and like African-American rights are respected. Right. And just allowing 5% and you're back in the union and we're, you know, take, take our troops out soon of, of your, uh, you know, of the, of the, of your state is kind of like, wow. So it's literally like, Oh, that's easy. Like, Oh, remember that thing that happened a couple of years ago? That's one and done. Don't worry about it. Mm, wow. And so that really, to me is like, man, if Abraham Lincoln was alive, maybe it would have been harder, for, you know, or there would have been more people in power in the, in the South that would have like helped reconstruction move on better right? and grow and like be able to have more opportunities for like African-Americans, former slaves, uh, coming into the now unenslaved free population of the United States. Right. That's so, pretty awesome. 
I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, talking with you tonight. Would you come back? Well, yeah, the podcast is, yeah, one, but Myrtle Beach is definitely a comeback because it's warm, okay. all nice, and I love it. But yes, the, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Kevin, I like, I really enjoyed talking to you, hearing me out, asking me these things because, you know, it's like our generation likes, you know, likes to be able to have our voices heard and, you know, up and coming, like the next generation. Like you saw, we yeah. have um, the um, dude from Florida. Uh, who elected to Congress and he's 25. Right. And he's like five years older than me and he's in Congress. Yeah. He's my generation. Yeah. We're starting to, we're starting to make, put, put our foot in the door of having our voices heard and being in positions of power to be able yeah. to do stuff and make change. So I really appreciate all the opportunities that I get to be able to talk about history and talk about and just have a good conversation. You know what I'm saying? That's right. Well, I certainly thank you. Uh, I'll encourage you to keep, you know, keep on keeping on. I encourage you with your studies. I look for, Big and exciting things uh, in the future from you. You know what I'm saying? Maybe I'll be reading the paper one day and boom, I'll see John Patton. But I, I'm, I'm really excited about you and and, and, and where you're going and in your history and, and your studies. So if I can ever do anything to help you, don't hesitate to call out on me. And I'd like to thank everybody for listening uh, to this episode of Safe Conversation with Kevin Waits. And we will see you next time. The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Waits. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcasts. Find Kevin Waits on Facebook at Kevin Waits and join the Safe Conversations group. Follow the Mino Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mino Line Media. Get the Mino Line Media app in the App Store or Google Play. The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is a Mean Old Line Media production. You've worked hard for what you have your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.